I got a feeling when I came into triathlon that there was a lot of, uh, well, there, there'll always be another opportunity. And, of course, that, that weakens you in the major championships. You've got to feel that there isn't, you will die one minute after you finish the race. That Triathlon Show, episode 96. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Malcolm Brown. I'm sure that many of you will know who he is. He has been coaching the Brownlee brothers since they were young teenagers, along with uh, Jack Maitland, and with Alistair Brownlee being a double Olympic champion, it would be very difficult, I think, to find somebody who has had as much coaching success at the highest level as Malcolm. And of course, it's not just the Brownleys. He's been a big part of the entire British triathlon success for many, many years now and has been an integral part in building up the Leeds Triathlon Center that uh, produces athletes like the Brownleys, the Vicky Hollands and non-Stanfords of the world and many, many others. And so, just in short, he has uh, reached international gold medals at the Olympics, Commonwealth, European and world levels. And he was the British Triathlon's Olympic Performance Manager for the London 2012 Olympic Games. And before his triathlon career, coaching career began, he was uh, a running coach for UK Athletics. So his background in endurance sports is uh, really, really extensive. And he is now retiring, and uh, which is uh, why he had the time, as you will get into a bit, to do this interview, and for which I'm very, very grateful. Finally, one important thing to mention about Malcolm is that in 2013, he was awarded an MBE in uh, the Queen's New Year's Honours lists. So, what we'll cover in the interview with Malcolm includes a wide variety of topics, really, from how the Brownleys and the British triathlon team train, and Malcolm's thoughts on run training in triathlon, and why the Brits seem to always be ready to perform at their top when it really matters, how to become as good at suffering and going out at a suicide pace and maintaining it, like the Brownleys, for example, tend to do, and a lot of these topics we, of course, try to turn into teachings that you uh, that uh, are probably an age group athlete or a coach can use in your training and your coaching and not just being talking about the elite all the time. But before we get into the interview, this episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. And until the end of February, all that Triathlon Show listeners can get one free box or tube of Precision Hydration Electrolyte product by going to precisionhydration.com, add a box to your buying cart, your shopping cart, and use the code Show, all one word, at checkout, and you will get your box for free. And of course, you should take their free online sweat test to make sure that you choose an electrolyte strength that is tailored for you individually. It's free, it's quick, and it's very, very accurate. This episode is also sponsored by Triathlon Corner, a triathlon webshop on triathlon-corner.store. 
If you're in the market for anything from running shoes to wetsuits to power meters and bike computers, they've got it and plenty of these products they have at great deal prices. So just go there and shop around and see if you can find what you need for your 2018 season to get all set for that. Of course, they ship worldwide and you can find them again on triathlon-corner.store. Now, I definitely don't want to have you wait any longer for this interview, so let's hear my interview with Malcolm Brown. So today on That Triathlon Show, I am very, very pleased to welcome Malcolm Brown to the show. Malcolm, how are you today? I'm very, very good, thank you, and um, and very relaxed in my new uh, retired state that I have. That's funny because that's actually the first question that I have on my list. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, your retiring. How did that uh, decision come up and uh, and how is it going so far? Uh, well, it's going really well um, in that um, I've got enough to do, um, uh, mainly a lot of coach, um, talking to coaches and coach development work Um in triathlon and uh, in athletics, which uh, I really enjoy doing. Um, but I haven't got too much to do. Um, uh, it's just it's like the Goldilocks and the three bears. You know, the porridge is just the right temperature at the moment. <laughs> Was it a bit too hot at times when you, when you were coaching actively? Too much to do? Um it, it, there was a lot to do. Um, I, the, the coaching itself was the sort of um, the really enjoyable um, part of the of, of the working week day. Um, the um, everything that went around it, you know, particularly when we had um, at the Leeds Triathlon Centre, we had you know between ten and fifteen. Uh, athletes who are funded by British Triathlon with the expectation that they um, produce medals at major major events or are on their way to. Um, there was a, a lot of account, under, understandably, a lot of accountability around all that and requirements. Um, and we have some really good partners in Leeds with the two universities and the city council, uh, as well as British Triathlon, obviously. Um, so there was a lot of um, uh, off, 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 off track work that needed to be done, and I tended to be running from one meeting to another outside of the coaching. Yeah, uh, so let's uh, talk a bit about your your contribution to uh, to the British Triathlon and, and Team Team GB, and uh, with the environment that you had in Leeds, especially uh, you had so much success in many major events. Uh, the Brownlees is um, probably the the most famous example of your athletes, but there are many others as well. So, but what do you think has been your biggest contribution to the success that the team has had? And uh, uh, and let's let's talk about what you have brought to the table and, and not things like having a great team environment and great infrastructure and those sorts of things but actually what what you think that you have contributed with well i i i, I was i was invited um by jack maitland my co-coach and co-founder of the leeds triathlon center i was invited by him um to formally coach uh the running element of the of the sport um uh after Alistair and Johnny Brownlee had sort of sought me out with, with their dad back 15 years ago now um and 
having spent 25 years in endurance running, you know, with British athletics, um, that was obviously a, a specific expertise that they felt I had. Um, and I, I took a different view, I think, of, of run training, which maybe we'll discuss later. Then, can you give a, actually give a little teaser of that right right away? What what uh, was an example of of that? How you took a different view? I think many, you know, what I saw in triathlon, and indeed I saw a lot of it in in, in athletics as well, was um, um, quite a, quite a substantial emphasis on. Um, on making sure you can complete the distance, on a, a sort of focus on endurance. And I looked at what triathletes were doing generally, and I, I felt the weakness in most cases was actually the ability to tolerate um, a higher speed rather than actually getting to the end of the race. And um, and and by working at speed, uh, relatively speaking, um, uh it, it brings you into things like running technique and strength training and reactivity off the off the ground and holding holding stride length and stride frequency um, and that's how really I, I I looked at developing the young Brownleys and, and other athletes so I wasn't so concerned with what time they ran for 10k I was more concerned with them looking as if they were uh, 800 meter runners, if you like. Um, yeah. Although the 800 has changed in the last 15 years. So let's say 1500 meter runners, because the 800 meter runners look more like 400 meter runners now at the, at the top level. Um, so, um, so it was that sort of feeling that when you got off the bike, there was no reason why you couldn't attack the first kilometer, the first three kilometers in ITU, um, Olympic distance, um, and, and take it from there. Perfect. And, and anything, anything else besides running? Well, the, the, the other thing was because I'd recently um, stopped working with British Athletics in order to concentrate on my job at uh, uh, Leeds um, Metropolitan University. I was director of, I'd been appointed director of sport there in 2000. Um, but I'd had had the privilege, really, of working with some really world-class British endurance athletes. But when I was away with the British team, so... Um, Dame Kelly Holmes, who won two Olympic medals in middle distance at Athens, for instance, and won one in Sydney Olympics. Um, I'd worked over 10 years alongside Paula Radcliffe and, uh, and, and some great British sprinters um, and John Brown, the marathon runner. Um, and what I'd learned from these characters was different things from different people, but I'd learned what world-class looked like, what world-class preparation looked like, what the uh, expectations and the uh, and the lack of compromise looked like. Also, who supports you and how important that is to have people who are really world-class or close to it, doctors and physios, for instance. And I think I brought that to the developing Leeds triathlon environment, which was a real understanding of what it took to win in an Olympic environment um, amongst a number of other things. So that's what I would say as a, I came along with a lot of network, um, medics, physios, 
nutritionists, conditioners who I knew were world class, and I gradually tried to bring them in, into Leeds and, in, and therefore indirectly into British triathlon. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting to hear that you were directly involved in, in actually setting up the infrastructure that's uh, much talked about these days as a big, big part of the success of, of the British triathletes. Uh, what uh, what are some specific examples of the benefits that, that the athletes have being part of such a great daily training environment as you have in Leeds? Well, I think I think the first thing is that they when they when an 18 year old we we usually have athletes coming to us um when they finish their schooling in britain and move to universities at the age of 18 that's the crossroads and they they almost without exception they come to us at 18 or a bit later in some cases um and i think what they find is um is, is a particular culture and environment which is both supportive but very challenging. Um, and it's been set by Alistair and Johnny, you know, Jack and myself um, in the early days, and now other coaches you know, have come in, like Liam O'Neill and, and others, um, Sinan. And, and what, that, what that is is, is um, an environment which um, values consistency of training as a high, high priority. Um, and in order to be consistent, you have to learn yourself what your body can tolerate and what it can't tolerate. And so there's also a high expectation on self-learning uh, that within, within the training week, there are coach-led sessions, 40 or 50 across all our squads. But there's also a number of occasions when you're on your own. And it's probably there where athletes have to learn what they can do, what they can't do, and take some control of their own destiny as athletes. So uh, the culture isn't coach-led, it's athlete-led and coach-supported. So would you say that is the challenge uh, not necessarily the the training itself, but uh, but the thing things that come around it and and doing what you just said about learning to get to know your body and uh, and doing all the prepar- world class preparation that you need to do to to stay consistent, or or is the training also a big part of the challenge? And some some athletes can't handle the training as well as others. The training, I think, is slightly secondary to the first point that we made there about learning and taking responsibility. Um, Because once you've learned to take responsibility, you start to um, amend the training marginally for your own purposes. Um, This sounds as if we've got, you know, a lot of athletes all doing their own thing, which it isn't. There's a very strong framework and there's a very strong philosophy around the swimming, around the running, and to a lesser extent, but definitely now around the cycling. Um, But until uh, an athlete knows themselves 
and knows when to challenge themselves and when to back off. All the rest of it is 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 a wee bit secondary, I would say. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, it, it definitely does, and I think that's uh, something that is uh, totally applicable for for the age groupers. That is the majority of the listening audience uh, as well. Uh, and um, is is there anything else, by the way, that from this training environment that you think that that age groupers can learn and take away from how you have have it set up for for the elites and the aspiring elites? Well, I think the other thing that I did bring to the party, I mean, going back to your original question there, um, my learning from, you know, 25 years involved in British athletics before was um, was the importance of uh, focus on a key goal. So I think we may discuss it later, but Alistair and Johnny and Vicky and Noan have always um been able to focus on say a championships each year um uh and and by and large perform at their best at the major on the major day that matters um and that that i think was helped by my experience in track and field where in 52 weeks of the year by and large there's only two races that matter for most athletes, they train and they, they train for their national trials. And if they do well enough, they go to the national or whatever, the European championships or the worlds or the, and then they, whatever they do there. So there's two competitions really. Whereas in triathlon, as, as you're well aware, there's always another day. And when you know there's always another day and another competition, your mentality says, well, it doesn't matter what I did today. There's always another day this year. And I, I got the, I got a feeling when I came into triathlon that there was a lot of, uh, well, there, there'll always be another opportunity. And, of course, that, that weakens you in the major championships. You've got to feel that there isn't, you will die one minute after you finish the race <laughs> and there will be no other opportunity. Yeah, and that's, that's the mentality that I think and the philosophy, and that shapes the training, of course, over the year. And the racing that you do and what you don't do and where you don't go and who you don't go with. And those things, I think, are really important as well. I think I brought that very, very sharp focus um, to the training and competition program. Yeah, that's that's very very interesting, very 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 useful points, and and definitely true. I guess if you're doing an Ironman for again for age groupers, may, maybe that kind of automatically gives you that one big goal because you're not going to do too many others. Maybe you do two in a year, but that's still same as in the marathoning circle, for example, on on the on the road running scene. But but if you're into the shorter distances, there's no no limit to how many races you do, and there's always another day. Uh, but which can be good, but also detrimental to optimal performance. Uh, what are uh, this is actually a topic that I saw because you recently presented at uh, the Science Plus Triathlon Conference in uh, in Canada, and you talked a little bit about uh, things that have changed in how elite triathletes train in the last ten to fifteen years. Can you elaborate a bit about that? Yeah. Well. Um... I think I think I mentioned there the uh, certainly in the running the the folk the, you know I got the impression when I came in that really the the the, the run was a, a you know a, a survival test at the end of 
end, end of the event, um, uh, with with some of you know, major exceptions, obviously some fantastic athletes. But I always felt there was room for you know room for improvement there, and we discussed earlier and touched on earlier the fact that um, I wanted I wanted athletes to attack the 10k and to run it as a whatever they're done on the bike. And I know the bike you know has a massive influence. Um, you know, however that goes in, in ITU has a massive influence on what you can actually do. But it doesn't necessarily change your attitude to the run. Um, and so that, that so that was a major change. But in, in a wider sense, um, but following on from that, um, I, I felt that uh, certainly in the UK, we've, we, we've, we've, we, un- we understand more uh, around the value of strength training and its its contribution to um, uh, helping athletes stay uninjured, endurance athletes stay uninjured. So, so strength and endurance were you know it's considered to be two two ends of you know the physical development spectrum, but somewhere they meet in the middle, uh, and the, and I, and I think the the potential of um, strength training to contribute to um, resilience is very significant, and I think that's been created. That's become more sophisticated. That understanding over the last fifteen years, and has a big role to play in keeping keeping athletes consistent. Going back to one of our earlier themes in their training. Um, so I would I would say uh, for age groupers listening in here. Um, not, not, not to always um, dismiss the value of actually um, being indoors as opposed to outdoors, <laughs> um, working on lower limb strength and resilience work in order to keep you uninjured and keep you on track in terms of your training schedules. Mm, yeah, very good. We had a relatively recent episode uh, on on that and on the upswing in in the scientific evidence that's coming out about uh, strength training not just from injury prevention but also improvement in performance you mentioned uh, getting triathletes to run like milers well if you want to do that then you need that springiness and that's some one of the examples of how strength training can uh, can improve performance improving running economy like that is there on a more personal coaching level is there something that uh, not necessarily uh, in a global sense has changed in how triathletes train, but something that you have changed your mind about or learned in the, in the last 10 or 15 years in, in your coaching? Um, yeah. Uh, well, just going back to the previous point, yes, that plyometric element in, in, the, in the strength training, I think is really important as well for, for, you know, for, for increasing uh, economy and, and ability to run fast. Um, but in going back to uh, your question just there, um, uh, I, I think what I've learned from triathlon, and it's interesting. Last night I was uh, was asked to do a talk for England Athletics, you know, um, with 10, 10 of their coaches, and um, uh, a similar question came up. And really, is around the ability of the human body to to recover from training, um, and so. I was I was actually at uh, the, the Samoa Farah track at St Mary's 
university in 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 London, uh, where Mo spent a lot of his formative years before he went to um, be coached and live in in the US. Um, and um, I, I know I know quite a quite a bit about his training because I, I was you know saw him as a young man and um, the British athletics people have shared some things with us and um, with me and um, basically he'd be running about fifteen hours a week give or take depending on many factors whereas our triathletes as you know will be um, doing aerobic or anaerobic training uh, on bike swim run for well over 30 hours a week and that's a substantial difference and obviously you know you're not load bearing and you know various other things and runners can't do that amount of training um, and still be running um, uh, but the ability you know of for the brownlees to train and train and train and recover in between sessions and overnight and come back again the next morning at 7 a.m. for the next swim session. It's really been remarkable. And, and to some extent, it almost distinguishes, I think, the very, very best from the next best. The ability to recover between sessions and between days and between blocks of training um, as opposed to those who can manage that for, you know, a training camp, but can't maybe keep that going for much longer. So what I've learned over the last 15 years is that we actually don't know the limits of human performance because there's a lot we don't know about how to recover and to recover better, as opposed to what we do know, which is a lot about training, physiology, lactate thresholds, drag coefficients, and all that sort of stuff. Do we really know the most optimum ways to recover from particular efforts? And I think we're getting there, but I'm not sure we're as advanced in that as we are about the work element of training. I guess that uh, quite a bit of, of how well you recover is uh, inherent, but uh, there's also a very much that you can do yourself to even with uh, in. A lot of it being unknown still, but but some of the things, the essentials like sleep and and nutrition, we we know quite a bit about. So, can you give some uh, some examples of how the Brownleys, for example, and the other athletes that you have, how how they uh, take charge of their own recovery and uh, try to really maximize the amount of recovery they get between sessions and blocks? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's a big difference between what they do when they're in Leeds and what they do on a training camp. You know, we find that training camps are really invaluable, uh, particularly in preparation for a major champs. And when I think about it, it's not that the training changes very much. It's just that the re the quality of the rest, the, the quality of the rest between training sessions is so much higher than when they're training in Leeds. The reason being is that everything is catered for. So the most important person after the athlete on the training camp is the chef because the chef goes and does the shopping, does the cooking, clears up, does most of the washing up and does that three times a day for 28 days. And the athlete doesn't do that for 28 days. So something as simple as not having to do the everyday activities of life 
but being able to rest makes a big difference in that last four, five, six weeks before a major championships. So yes, you know, the obvious things are, are rest and there's obvious things about um, recovery techniques immediately after hard efforts. Do you do that? Uh, so, so things like, can you give some examples? Do you do like, like hydrotherapy or, or ice baths or, or other, other things that to get that acute recovery? Yeah, we've tried it. I mean, if you talk to Alistair, he would, what he would say is, particularly after a race, when you're obviously, you know, and as we said earlier, when they race, they tend, in most cases, to flatten themselves because they don't race an enormous amount of time. And so so the question then is, well, if you do really, really work hard in, in a race, how do you recover from it? And we've tried ice and we've tried heat and we've tried low-level aerobic recovery and we've tried um, uh, intent, int- more, more short, sharp bursts. And when you get a deep, deep tiredness and a deep fatigue, I don't think there's any short-term recovery that you can accelerate that has a that has a, a medium term effect if you see what i mean yeah yeah uh, that, that's something we actually uh, shona holson who is a leading researcher on on these acute recovery methods from the australian institute of sport uh, said kind of the same thing when i interviewed her uh, quite a few episodes ago i think it was episode 51 yeah i mean i, I as you know, if, if 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 you work hard and then you go uh, and have an ice bath or you stand, you know, in Sam Rich, you stand in the stream, which is pretty cold up there, whatever time of year, um, and you come out and, you, and, and, and the muscles feel numb and they feel good for a little while, I'm not sure they feel much better, you know, the next day. And, uh, and we've tried the heat and we've tried the massage and we've and, and that, at the end of the day, deep fatigue just works its way out (laughs) but it's very individual again you're absolutely right you know there are individual differences in how people respond to training and there are individual differences in how people recover i've known marathon runners uh when i was in my early days of coaching there was two i was in scotland at edinburgh university two marathon runners both ran the same marathon one week one they both ran 240 or 239 240 and then the next week, one of them said, I'm going to do another marathon. I can do better than that next week. And four weeks later, the first marathon runner still couldn't run properly. So one, wow. one <laughs> that's a big difference. One recovered in seven days and one 28 days later was still saying, don't start my training properly yet because I haven't, you know, then they're the extremes, but that's individual differences, as you say. Yeah, yeah, incredible. So going back to that running again, because uh, yeah, you, you have such a wealth of knowledge that, that I can't let you go without trying to, to milk you off all the information that, that I can. So, so you mentioned some of the things there, like learning to attack the, the 10K. And, but so, so how would the training, and let's talk a bit from the age group perspective perhaps about this, if you, if you can, what, what advice could you give for them for the triathlon run training? Well, I think I think a, a few principles to guide their decision making are important, you know, because um, I, I am a great believer in individual differences, and that you need to wrap the training methodology around the individual 
athlete you have in front of you, you know, talking of a coach. Um, uh, so, you know, without knowing, you know, your audience individually, um, uh, I think principles are, are more important by which athletes and coaches can then start to map their training ideas against. And, and that first one that we mentioned there of, um, well, it doesn't, you know, to me, consistency of training, uh, whatever methodology you're following um, is the key. And to be consistent, you have to have an organized, predictable life uh, with the support of, the, you know, um, significant others um, uh, who have accepted that you are, you know, um, a triathlete um, and, and working and, and all the rest of it. And uh, as much as possible, as much as life enables that, consistency is the main thing rather than, um, endeavoring to have a few uh, high-flying sessions uh, a week or a month um, if the consequence of the high-flying sessions is that you're unable to complete the consistent training program that you have in front of you. So that would be number one. The second, I think, would be um, in terms of run training is that um, uh, run, running just at race pace it's probably not enough to improve your race pace. <laughs> One of the paradoxes of life. Um, uh, you probably need to run faster than race pace consistently once a week or once a fortnight at worst in order to improve how fast you're going to run at race pace. So um, without ignoring you know, the value of race pace running um, and the specificity principle, I would definitely encourage um, age groupers to look at uh, raising their game uh, once or twice a week on an organized basis, um, as well as uh, polarized training, you know, which Stephen Seeler has been an advocate of. I don't know if you're aware of Professor yeah, Stephen Seeler, who um, has done some interesting backward science where instead of uh, – starting in a lab looking at a rat and, move, and then extrapolating to humans. He started with humans, uh, Olympic athletes in endurance events in Norway um, and seen what they've done and then tried to elicit commonalities across a number of endurance sports. Um, and one of them is this sort of notion of uh, working, you know, at very low lactate levels below two millimolar per liter, uh, levels one, levels two, uh, for a large proportion of your time, and also working occasionally but regularly at a very high level, you know, VO2 max and above. And that's really the philosophy that we would support as well. Mm, yeah. I heard on another podcast, I think it was uh, Mark Lysi's podcast, that uh, at Lead Center that that you have a specific philosophy on on brick runs and uh, how you do them and inserting uh, above race pace and race pace intervals, but not necessarily uh, not, like not trying to reduce the risk of injury in the brick run specifically. Is is that something that's correct, or can you elaborate on that? Yeah, the. I think the, the guiding principle is that um, too many is not good. 
So we're trying to do as few as we can whilst not neglecting preparation. Um, and so they do come in, bef you know, before key races of the year. Um, and they tend to be no, obviously we, we work hard off the bike uh, for an hour, drop the bike and some combination of two minute runs, three minute runs, four minute runs and eventually five minute runs, but probably not more than 14, 15 minutes max ever would be done. And is that, that would, at, race, at race pace or, or is it uh, above race pace or? Faster than race pace. Yeah. So really, you're sort of replicating um, that first, you'd have seen the Brownleys on that first kilometer, you know, after coming off the bike, they're running between 240, 245 and, and 250, something like that, kilometer pace. And th that's what they're looking to do in training two, three times before key races probably no more than that mm. so it's a critical part but but they are particularly good at it anyhow so it's something that they could not do for six months in the winter training come out and do it and they do it at a high level so again that individualization of training needs to be um needs to be looked at as well it may be that some people need to go a little bit more often maybe a little bit further into the winter when they're doing it um But by and large, that's the principle, yeah. Yeah. If for the listeners, the age groupers, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that uh, you want to give us advice that, to consider uh, if they are a self-coached athlete, especially, and related to the, the actual training or anything around triathlon, like recovery or having a goal or anything like that? I think I think the key. Th I think one of the most difficult things for any athlete really is to be objective about where they are and how things are going. Um, even in this day of numbers and being able to measure everything, <laughs> um, uh, you almost need a filter for people to filter out what is really important at any moment in time and what is just stuff that's there and maybe other stuff that may even be getting in the way, whether that be information or whether that be lifestyle or whether that be anything else. And um, doing it on your own uh, is exceptionally difficult. And in this day and age, having somebody who who can just – not necessarily a coach, but somebody who can just be a reassuring presence. And I'll give you an, an example. Um, I, go, I go back many, many years, and you mentioned miling a long time ago. And one of the best British milers ever was Steve Ovet, who broke um, world records and won Olympic medals at the 800 meters and so on and so forth and um, in, the, in, in the Olympic Games. And I, I remember standing at the – at a major event in London when all the best milers in the world were brought to have a go and see if they could beat Ovette, who had won 35 consecutive mile races over a, a year and a half. And I was standing with his coach, 
and the, the, the athletes were on the start line and they were bouncing. Ovette was bouncing up and down. He was six feet tall, never been fitter in his life. He'd beaten all these athletes before, even if they were the best in the US and Kenya and the rest of it. And I said to his coach, he looks fantastic. And the coach, Harry Wilson, said to me, you'd be really surprised, Malcolm. You know, an hour ago, he was as nervous as a kitten. And he was telling me how good every other athlete in the race was. And I was having to remind him how good he was. And I never forget that because if Steve Ovette on that day, Olympic champion, winner of 35 consecutive mile and 1500 meter races, can be worried and anxious and not sure of himself, then all of us can be. And I think having somebody who you trust and rely on just to have another look and view at what you're doing and when you're doing it is probably the biggest bit of advice I can give to anybody. Mm. Perfect. Let's move into a few listener questions that, that I got on Facebook uh, for, on the Scientific Triathlon Facebook page. And uh, I've, I've picked a couple of the ones that I think will be most interesting for the majority of the audience. And, and the first one is especially as it uh, pertains to Alistair moving to at least doubling into non-draft racing, what are the most important changes in training that uh, that happens in that move from draft legal to non-draft racing? Yeah, well, uh, when, I th- when, when Alistair mo- moved um, last year effectively, um, uh, he's sort of done that outside of our our coaching environment to a large extent. So he's, he's still been supported by British triathlon, um, but it's it sort of experimenting. And so it's only what I've observed rather than what I've actually had an input into. Um, and the key really is, as you can imagine, isn't the swimming and actually isn't the running too much. It's the running hasn't changed dramatically, but he's had to adjust to the bike Um both the physical demands of the distance, um, but also just being able to hold that position um, and then being able to get off the bike and then being able to complete the race, complete the run. Um, And so that's taken him a while to adjust to. And then, of course, the nutritional demands of the event has taken a while to adjust to, and he's... I think he would say himself he's not he doesn't adhere to <laughs> a particular nutritional plan particularly well in a race um, uh, and sometimes that comes back to bite him but but effectively um, because he was doing so much training already he can't do any more training so the adjustment really has been around well he's kept the swim program much the same he's kept the run program much the same, but a little less emphasis on the VO2 Tuesday night track sessions than he had. Um, And the main challenge to him has been physically adjusting to spending hours on the bike in a similar position. Hmm. All right. And uh, what about peaking? This is another question. These first questions, by the way, it was... uh Mikko and uh, Lars that uh, sent them in and this one is from Guillaume who asked about peaking and uh, how as you mentioned the Brownleys and Vicky Holland and Nan Stanford seem to get it right in most major competitions and is there a secret to that or, or how, how did they manage it? Um, no I don't think there are secrets I think I think there's a, a I think there's something that um, athletes every human being 
finds difficult to do, and that is to say no and to be disciplined. Um, so we mentioned earlier that peaking not only require it's not only about what you do do in terms of being fit. It's actually it's actually turning down opportunities to go to other events. Other events that you know these are professional triathletes that actually may pay very well. And I know both Vicky and Non found the fact that they the year before the Olympics in Rio they had a very demanding um, selection criteria by British Triathlon to be pre-selected a year out. They had to go to the Rio test event and medal, and then uh, you would have thought that was a sufficient, but it wasn't. They then had to go to the, the grand final in Chicago, I believe, um, from memory. Uh, yes, it was. I was there. Um, and, and repeat it. Uh, and they did. So they fantastic. had to medal, medal at Chicago again after meddling in the Rio yeah, test event. They had medal okay. twice, which they did. And I thought, this would be great. You know, they'll be so happy about this. And they were happy about it for a week or two until they got selected. And then they started to worry about the fact <laughs> that the only race that mattered next year was the Olympics and that all those other things that used to matter don't anymore. Uh, and they would have to turn down opportunities to race in the WTS events in order to be at their best at the Olympics or be close to the, give themselves the best chance. And um, and they told me after Rio that that was one of the hardest things that they did, which was actually not racing in order to be at their best for Rio. So um, there are no secrets, but there's a lot of willpower and discipline required in terms of peaking. Is it difficult for the athletes to drop training volume as well in uh, leading up to a big, a major competition like that? Or do they find that that is uh, something that comes comes naturally and, and it's all part of being at your freshest when, when the day comes? Uh, I find it, Mikhail, very individual. Um, so none will want to keep, keep training, keep training, keep training. And Vicky will always take an opportunity to have a little bit of a rest. Um, uh, Vicky's a sort of mountains and valleys type person. You know, when she's at her best, she can do a lot of training. But when when things are, when there are bumps in the road, it's actually best to acknowledge them and to take the foot of the accelerator with Vic. And she's psychologically comfortable with that, more comfortable with that than she would be trying to just batter on through. Whereas non likes to batter on through, and both have got strengths and weaknesses. Um, so again, you know, as, a, as we, you know, the theme of this really is that um, the individual differences are probably as great as the similarities with those two athletes. For example, mm. I, I have one more question that came to mind just just now that uh, I would be very curious to hear, and that's about one thing that keeps coming up when you see Alistair and Johnny racing is is how the way they race and and the way they just seem to love punishing themselves and punishing others and and suffering through it. And we know that that has always been kind of part of their DNA, but I, I'm curious: has that 
changed and have they even improved their ability to suffer over the years of doing that and and is is that something that people can improve somehow by by doing doing that in training or what's your take on that I'm absolutely convinced um and you know it goes back to one of your earlier questions what have I learned over the last 15 years um I'm absolutely convinced that um with a particular if you adopt a particular view of particular training sessions um, and you practice, use the word practice, you create, initially it's a mindset that enables you to do it, but the very doing of it creates changes in body and mind which enables you to do it better if you see what i mean yeah yeah um and there's people talk about a central governor and um uh i, I the way the way i envisage it is if you train at altitude and you, and you um and you do endurance training generally you lay down mitochondria and you develop mitochondria and i i think if you if you attack training you develop a mindset which never leaves you when and and particularly when you most need it so i think the reason that alan john are as tough as they are one of the reasons is that every saturday morning for the last 15 years 48 saturdays out of 52 they attack a particular running training session we do and it's not even, and, and the conditions can be, you know, horrendous or they can be perfect. It makes not a jot of difference. They don't worry about it. They don't talk about it. They just warm up, get ready, go. And I think what's, yes. what's happened is that that actually leads them to be able to do that without thinking whenever they want to turn it on. It becomes subconscious. It's great food for thought, and uh, yeah, I think that's uh, yeah, and one one of many great pieces of uh, of information and uh, and advice that we've we've gotten today. But uh, it's time to start wrapping this up with uh, just three rapid fire questions, and uh, take uh, fifteen seconds or less to answer these uh, in uh, the name of rapid fire. So the first one is what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon or endurance sports? Um, back in the day, it was the law of running by Tim Noakes. Uh, more recently, I'm going to have to say it's Alistair and Johnny's, uh, book that came out in 2013. Yeah. It's so brilliant. I love that one. Uh, fine, next one. What do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some point in your triathlon career? Uh, I or, or coach, coaching career, I, I should say, sorry. Yeah. I, 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 I was once a little bit too honest to um, uh, a world-class, world record holder um, about the reasons why they weren't able to uh, win Olympic medals. Um, I'm not sure I've been forgiven yet, and I doubt if I ever will. And who is somebody in triathlon or coaching endurance sports that, or endurance sports in general that you look up to? 
my father ran the mile with a guy called Roger Bannister. Um, he didn't run as fast as Roger Bannister, but he wasn't far behind him. And uh, a lot of what I've learned um, about endurance and life uh, came from my father, Jack Brown, who's you know, passed away now. But uh, I sometimes think you can forget the influence your parents have on you when you have all these other superstar influences on you. Brilliant. Uh, thank you so much, Malcolm, for your uh, generous uh, time, giving of your time to us today. This has been an absolute pleasure and I learned so much. Uh, I'm going to start immediately sit down and take a lot of notes when, when we end this interview. Uh, you're on Twitter. Is that the best way that people can follow you or, or is it uh, by listening to interviews like this and uh, just Googling you? Um, uh, yes, I'm on Twitter and now I've retired. I can learn how to use it. Um, so uh, hopefully you'll get more tweets not as many as Donald Trump mind you but uh, uh, you'll get a few more tweets yeah. and um, uh, that might be that might be one way of doing it and thank you for interviewing me you know, it's a really you know I feel very humble and thank you for the questions from the age groupers which were which were challenging yeah great thank you again Malcolm and uh, all the best of luck and uh, and uh, have a great time in uh, retirement with that Goldilocks amount of things to do hope that continues okay thank, thank you Mikhail good luck with um, everything you do thanks bye bye all right so I really have to say from the start here that uh I'm very, very selective with which guests I have on the show, as you probably know and realize. And this means that I'm always excited about the interviews and, and always learn something, I feel. But then there are a few interviews that just are that little bit extra special and just makes me go, wow. And, and this interview with Malcolm was one of them for sure. And I think the reasons that, that it made such an impact on me is uh, that this was actually direct insights, not anything vague, not, 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 not any fluff, in the guiding principles behind arguably the world's most successful triathlon setup maybe ever. It was, and it was practical. It can be adapted to a non-elite level. I may be wrong, but I think a lot of the tips that Malcolm shared here are things that at least I haven't seen a lot in triathlon media anywhere really from any coach. So, so it adds a lot of new stuff to what sometimes feel, feels like a bit of saturated, uh, a saturated bucket of, of information on triathlon training that, that rarely sees something, something new. But, but this really, to me, was something that gave me so much food for thought and as I said in the interview I took a ton of notes and I'm going to be reviewing them now daily for a few days to really let this uh, sink in and and see how to best apply it but uh, I'm sure that some of you are asking which are the other interviews that made me go wow so sure I'll name, the, name drop a few and this is just off the top of my head uh, I haven't uh, gone through the archives to pick up every single one but uh, the ones that come to mind immediately include Jesse Kropelnicki, episode 40, David Tilbury Davis, episode 53, Jerry Rodriguez, episode 3, Samuele Marcora, episode 17, and Andy Blow, episode 49. Again, these are just off the top of my head, but if you want those other wow interviews that at least for me were wow, and the download numbers seem to... Uh, indicate that you, many of you listeners agree, then those are some of the ones that you can check out. All right, so my top takeaways for this interview with Malcolm, it was really difficult to choose 
in a way, but in a way it wasn't because there are some things that that really stood out actually. So uh, I'm going to listen again and I may change my mind a couple of times, but but I think that the first one and the second one are definitely going to stay. So first, training triathletes to run like milers and really attack the 10k, that was a huge one. And the practical takeaway for you here is what Malcolm mentioned about frequent training at faster than race pace. So doing your track intervals, put simply. The second one would be how you can improve your ability to really knock yourself silly by consistently, frequently going out and really, really attacking a workout like the Brownlees do apparently every Saturday for the last 15 years. And I'm sure nobody would argue that the Brownlees have a special talent for that kind of training and racing, but I'm also sure that most of us have a lot of room for improvement in our ability to really tolerate that kind of racing and training style just by the mere act of doing more of it and, and really really attacking it, going, going balls to the walls. And finally, this one is uh, something that uh, I think is uh, I'm a personal big proponent of this strength training and uh, you heard episode 81 uh, if you haven't go back and listen to that the triathletes strength training form- formula but Malcolm mentioned that this is one of the things that has changed the most in the last 10 to 15 years in elite triathlon and it is for good reason when you look at all the evidence of how great strength training is for both performance and injury prevention And this is something that applies just as much to age groupers as elite triathletes. So if you haven't already, go and get that gym card sorted out and and start working out a little bit and uh, get get those strength gains that will really benefit your triathlon. So as usual, you can find the show notes for this episode on thattriathlonshow.com. And you can contact me if you have uh, any feedback on michael at scientifictriathlon.com or any topics you would like me to cover on on the podcast. If you have any specific thoughts on this topic, definitely go to the show notes and add them to the comment section there. Uh, that will be hugely appreciated. And on Monday, you'll hear an interview with Carrie Cheadle on mental skills in triathlon and the psychology of suffering. So actually, that's uh, an interesting coincidence that uh, this is coming after we talked quite a bit about uh, how to suffer through workouts and races. So this will be very timely, and I'm looking forward to that. I haven't uh, done the interview yet. I'll do that tomorrow at the time of this recording. So make sure that you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already so that you don't miss that and uh, don't miss any of the other episodes uh, that are coming up in the future either. Finally, thank you very, very much to our sponsors, Triathlon Corner, the online home of triathlon shopping. You can get the best products in the world to great prices. They ship worldwide. They have fantastic customer service. Some of the brands that uh, they carry include Garmin, Stages, uh, Café du Cycliste, Zip, Mako, Zonefree, Hoka Oneone, and there are many more. Check them out on triathlon-corner.store. And thank you to Precision Hydration. Make 2018 the year that you don't let incorrect hydration and electrolyte intake stop you from achieving your goals. So take them up on their offer to all of our listeners to get a free box of Precision Hydration product by using the discount code or actually free product code that's Triathlon Show, all one word, when you check out on precisionhydration.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.